So I came up here early this morning when I first got in, and I saw this thing sitting on my podium. And if you remember, this is a, an object lesson that we used on October 21st, 2021, October 15th, 2021, way back when. And it's a lock with a key. And if you remember, we did a series of sermons back then. And one of the things, this is actually in our Grace Community Church, and the title of that message was The Key Carrying Church. And if you remember the verse that goes along with it, it says, and, and he says, like, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. We talked about that a lot, that Jesus is building his church, and when you're saying building buildings, nope, although buildings do happen, he's building people, people fit for his kingdom. He's bringing forgiveness to people. He's changing lives. He's renewing lives, restoring hope. He's doing work in those kinds of things there. But this idea of keys, we all find things in our life that bind us up, lock us in a prison cell emotionally, physically sometimes, spiritually. And he says, I'll give you the kings as a, a keys as a follower of me that will unlock that lock. And I want to encourage you this morning that as a follower of Christ, or whatever reason brought you here this morning, you are not here by chance. You're not listening to this message by chance. It's an appointment by God to hear things. What we've done in worship this morning. Do you know how much God loves you? No, you don't. None of us do. None of us really understand the depth of his love. We could use all kinds of examples, but none of us really do. And we have to recognize, especially this morning, as a precursor to the message I'm about to share with you, we have to be firm and convinced that God loves us. He loves us so much that he'll tell us the truth. The truth that will change lives, that answers the questions of things that are going on all around us in our culture and in the world that we think we may know the answers, our culture may think the answers, but I'm telling you, looking at our culture, they don't have answers because things aren't getting better. And the message this morning is going to address some things, and I'll warn you ahead of time, it's the teachings of Jesus. We need Jesus' teachings now more than ever. And if you'll join me, I'm going to pray and invite the Spirit to come as He's already been here, but to lead us into understanding. Heavenly Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, You'd give us soft hearts, ears to hear, let the seed of your word penetrate our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the hand of the enemy that would try to distract. Let our emotions rule, our intellect rule. Lord, I pray that the, the pure truth, the pure milk truth of your word would sink down deep into hearts this morning and change lives. Lord, help us to be better aware today of how much you love us. No matter what's going on around us, you're still there. You have much to do for us, much to help us with, that we, we can have peace that passes understanding, we can have hope for a future, even when it looks like all is crumbling. And Lord, I just pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see, we're at the spot. For those that are visiting or new this morning, or first time tuning in, we are in a series on the teachings of Jesus, which goes back to a long thing of being prepared for action in the world that we live in, the drastic changes, all the stuff going on, 
as followers of Christ or anybody, we need to be prepared for action. That means being spiritually prepared. And so we're in this series on teachings, the teachings of Jesus. And uh, I want to say that, or just a reminder of where we've been a little bit in this, this recent series. In Jesus' time, when, when he spoke these words, <clears throat> the average person, when the word of God was read out loud, couldn't understand it because it was in a foreign language, a language they no longer understood. It was originally their native tongue, but because of captivity, they no longer could understand Hebrew, so it would be like you hearing it in Russian or something else that you don't understand. <coughs> At best, it might be you hearing it in Spanish and you catch a word here or there, but you don't understand the context of the meaning. Which means that God's people at the time, the Israelites, were totally relying upon Pharisees and scribes and teachers to tell them what the word was and then to interpret it for them and interpret how they should follow it. And so um, what those teachers did in trying to help themselves along and set up a whole bunch of checklists and a whole bunch of things that people should do and not do, but what happened in that process over hundreds of years, the teachers of the law had totally missed the heart of the law. They focused on the letter of the law, missed the heart of the law. And it's to that that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount in this series. He said, I, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's saying, this is what you've been told, this is what you've been taught, but I want to tell you what that law really means. Okay? He was explaining to them what it meant. And today, Jesus tackles divorce. It's going to be a tough message, I'll warn you right now. <laughs> My... It's not what I say tomorrow today will be absolutely, totally unpopular culturally and actually quite offensive. Not unfortunately, it will be. I just tell you that's just to give you a heads up, this is what's coming. Unfortunately, what I share this morning, most, a lot, not most, a lot of churches wouldn't teach this. Either because they're afraid of ruffling feathers or they don't believe it any longer, that it's changed. We live in a culture that readily, ready, our culture, really, culture readily accepts divorce. It even encourages it, and it, that whole mindset has crept into the church and into Christianity. How has that happened? How have we gotten away from what we're going to hear Jesus said about that this morning? How have we, I'm not going to talk about the world right now, the world long ago stopped following God's ways. Our culture stopped following God's ways wholeheartedly. And so what does that mean for us? But this is, Jesus was speaking to Jewish people, people who declared that they were, they were fellow uh, children of God. And so we can take that as people who are following Christ. The unfortunate thing is, how does that happen to us that we can stray so far in our attitudes towards something like divorce compared to what the Bible has to say about it? There's a word that came to my mind as I was studying this week, early on, putting this together on Friday. I was sitting up there, and the word apostasy came to mind. So I quickly looked it up in a dictionary, and the word apostasy means the abandonment or renunciation of a religious belief. When I, I don't like the word religious, but it does bring it to a spiritual matter. Um, and I would say, the, and then the other one, the abandonment of a previous loyalty. Unfortunately, Christians and Christianity and churches and pastors have wandered and have moved from a loyalty towards God being sovereign and in control and unchanging, and His truth is absolute and it doesn't change. There's been a, a move away from that loyalty, a move away from those things. And then in that is, is the abandonment and the renunciation and the backing off of and trying to redeclare or change religious beliefs and truths. Okay? I propose to you today that apostasy is rampant in our culture. 
Our culture has abandoned its loyalty to biblical morality. They've abandoned the fact that the Bible declares what is right is wrong. In times past, in the good old United States of America, it was widely accepted that the Bible was the source of guidance. The Bible was the best, best place to go to find out what right and wrong was. My father was even taught in a one-room schoolhouse or a two-room, one-room schoolhouse. And one of the things is they were constantly given biblical truth, actual verses that, that declared good things about how to live your life. And unfortunately, in, in so many ways today, our culture calls right wrong and wrong right. And we are seeing a, a flood of that recently. And, and the world has gone beyond that even to encouraging others to join and excel in humanistic disobedience to God's truth. Christians are not to be let off the hook because we're oftentimes as Christians guilty of the same things, abandoning or renouncing fundamental beliefs that God is the author or ultimate source of truth abandoning the fact that the Bible declares what's right and wrong, and that right and wrong don't change and never have changed from the beginning of time. Many are declaring that truth changes, as does right and wrong, that morality is subjective. And one of the things that's grieved my heart the most recently is since the overturn of Roe versus Wade, one of the neat things that's just come out now is, do you realize that there are clergy, church leaders, and rabbis, which are Jewish church leaders that are filing lawsuits against the federal government saying that the fact that abortion can't be done on demand interferes with their religious liberty. I can't even fathom how to get to that spot. But that's the world we live in. Not just the culture, but that's in some churches, in some faith communities. When it comes to marriage and divorce, our culture has changed from where it once was. It's compromised. And unfortunately, the church too often has followed along. Divorce is rampant. Marriage is devalued. We've tossed aside God's teaching on marriage and morality. Now more than ever, we need this teaching of Jesus to see what God says, not what the world says, not what the, the best argument of the last book you read, but what does God say? What did Jesus teach on this topic? I'm going to give you, let's take a look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, it has been said, this is what was being taught at the time that he lived by the religious leaders. It had been taught for generations. You have heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, now he says, I want to tell you what it really means that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, um, another passage, that's not the only spot that Jesus addressed this topic of divorce. A while later, he shared another message found in Matthew chapter 19. It says this, some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now, these are those teachers of the law. And they came to him to test him. In other words, they weren't looking for a real answer. They were trying to trap him and find a way if they could find fault with his teaching. And they said, um, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there may be some of you that would like to leave right now after what was just said, because that doesn't sound anything like what doesn't sound very loving, doesn't sound all those things there. I challenge you to follow this along, to ride this out till we get all the way to the end, and then maybe even pick up some other things that I'll suggest later on that will help bring some, some uh, context to all this. But we're going to unpack this teaching. We're going to look at four things in Jesus' teaching. First off, we're going to look at the Moses' teaching, which was referred to at the very beginning in the historical context of Moses' teaching. Then we're going to look at what were the Pharisees teaching. And then we're going to finally look at what Jesus taught. So let's take a look at what Moses taught. Okay, The historical context of Moses' teaching. When he shared what he said, and I'm going to read it to you in just a minute, but I want to tell you the state of affairs when Moses gave what I'm going to give you in a minute in the original law back in Deuteronomy. First off, in the culture of the time, which is the Israelites, which were God's people. And it's, I'm ashamed to even read this, as sometimes I'm ashamed to say things that go on in the name of Christ in our culture as well. But at that time in Israel, men generally had a very low and very, very poor view of women. They had come to believe that they had a right to divorce their wives for almost any and any kind of frivolous and unworthy reason. If a man wanted to get rid of his wife for any reason whatsoever, he did so. Men would, would trump up some excuse as the basis for the divorce. What was actually behind the rampancy of divorce at the time of Moses was lust and passion, unbridled. <clears throat> it's interesting that when Jesus taught this, where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount, Jeff preached last week, Jesus addressed what? Adultery. But there was a lot more to it. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, which is the Ten Commandments. But he said, I say unto you, and then probably made us all squirm a little bit, didn't it, last week? You know, the whole idea, if your eye causes you to stumble, anybody that looks on a woman with, with that, or any gal that looks on a guy with, with lust is guilty of it. Okay? It's, isn't it interesting that the very thing that Jesus preceded this message with, that one, dealt with the idea of lust and dealt with the idea of passion because the idea of divorce is rooted in lust and passion and those kinds of things, or at least it was at that time. So the two teachings are linked. Moses' law, ready? Listen to this. Moses' law was introduced to bring some control to a situation that had become utterly chaotic. The whole marriage situation and divorce in the time of Moses had become totally chaotic. People were doing whatever they felt like doing. Okay? And it had become grossly unfair to women. And it was responsible to untold and endless suffering in women and children. Worse, way worse than today. Way worse than today. Okay? Same thing is true of divorce today. It does great damage to women. And it does great damage to children. Yet as a culture, we don't talk about that. You can't talk about in the public arena the fact that a lot of our, and not all of them, but a lot of social issues are exacerbated, made worse by the breakdown of the family in our culture. But you will not read that. You will not hear 
Any, uh, any expert say that because it's distasteful, because it puts the onus back on us that we need to change. Okay, let's take a look at Moses' law. This is what Moses, Moses said. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his, his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, there's a lot in that, and it can be a little confusing because it's long and it's wordy, but let me break this down for you. What Moses said put some serious limitations onto divorce at the time. It limited it to only certain causes. And actually at that time, and I don't have time, unfortunately, to unpack all these things there and to declare why or what, but I just encourage you to keep your mind open and realize that sometimes answers to some of these questions, your questions, will come over time and not necessarily firstly this morning. But the, 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 the causes that were given were natural, a natural defect, moral defect, physical defect that was discovered in the wife. Doesn't seem fair, does it? How can she, how can she control a physical defect? I don't have time to declare that to you because I'm already... By just saying that I don't have time to declare it, I'm already going to punch us on the back end because there's so much stuff in the message this morning. But what this did with the intent was it was going to put a stop to the frivolous, crazy reasons that were being given for divorce. I don't know what year it was, but you used to actually have to be able to prove a real case in this country to be divorced. But then all of a sudden something called no-fault divorce was in us, and then you could get divorced for any and every reason, just like they were back then. The man... When Moses institutes this law, now the man was going to need to prove the defect, and it had to be proved with at least two witnesses that could attest to it. It didn't give an excuse for divorce at the time. It wasn't giving an excuse for it, but instead it greatly limited it. So we have to look at it. Was it a perfect situation? No, because I think the depravity of the people was so bad, God calls on Moses. Again, Moses' law was not making an excuse for divorce, but was trying to bring limits to it. Okay? Upon the divorce, the man was required to give a certificate of divorce. Previously, previously before this law, if a man wanted to divorce his woman or his wife, he just turned her out of his house. You're gone. That easy. That simple. Washed his hands of her. And now, which we don't even begin to understand what that would have meant in the culture, now she was at the mercy of the world around her. And it's sometimes, believe it or not, the crazy things in that culture, sometimes him doing that actually would lead to her being wrongly charged for unfaithfulness and adultery, which she wasn't guilty of, and maybe even being stoned to death. 
there were some terrible atrocities going around around this whole issue when this was issued. The certificate was meant as a protection. It's not a, a, a declaration on when is it okay or not okay for divorce. It was a protection for women in the situation. It was proof. It was proof that she wasn't guilty of adultery, that she had not been unfaithful to her husband. It was given, that certificate of divorce was given in the presence of two witnesses that would attest to it, so it could be proven later. It made divorce formal, something to be taken seriously rather than lightly. It explained the seriousness of marriage. This one right here, people were marrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, and then maybe going back and marrying the original spouse again. And it was trying to bring order to all that junk that was going on and putting limits to it and saying you can't do these things. It was trying to bring and let, let raise the seriousness in the, the importance of marriage in their culture. It dispelled the idea that it was okay to, to get rid of marriage when you just disliked your spouse. I'm sick of you. You don't make me happy anymore. You bother me. So, bye. The man divorced his wife, gave her a certificate of divorce, and was not allowed to marry her again. She was allowed to marry again with that bill of divorce, but if she divorced a second time, she couldn't remarry her first husband. Marriage was not something to be walked in and out of frivolously. Divorce of one's wife was permanent. Isn't it interesting, which we're going to find in a second, a tickler, marriage originally in God's plan was and is meant to be permanent. Moses' laws on divorce in no way condoned divorce. It's important you catch that. Nor did it put God's stamp of approval on it. You say, well, yeah, it did because God's the one that gave the law. You have to realize, I think the world and his people were so far removed from his plan that he was trying to bring that back. And Jesus brings it back even further in his teaching. Okay? Moses' law was meant to bring order to something that had led to chaos. Now, we want to jump ahead to, to the teaching of the Pharisees, what they were teaching. Okay? They taught, and it's actually listed in that. I just caught it this morning as I read it. They were actually teaching that Moses' law it actually commanded divorce and urged divorce under certain circumstances. But Moses' law never demanded or urged or pushed for divorce. But the Pharisees in their teaching over time grew to a spot where they were commanding it in certain situations and urging it in certain situations. And this led to people that demanded divorce and insisted that it was right for any and all reasons. They actually had gone all the way back to the same situation that was going on in Moses' time, and they were demanding and believing it was their right because of the Pharisees' teaching under any and all circumstances. The Pharisees went this far. Now catch this. The only idea of when Moses said for any defect or, or problem or whatever, the, the, the Pharisees got to a spot where they actually defined uncleanness and what a defect was. And they they went this far, that uncleanness and a defect in one's spouse was when that spouse ceased to be liked by their spouse any longer or found them unsatisfactory in any way. I just don't like you anymore. I find you unsatisfactory. 
a blurred big word that has no general meaning. It's just a general meaning. Okay? The practice of the Pharisees' teaching and the interpretation led to, again, terrible injustices in that culture toward women. It had gotten to the point that the only factor, the only detail that really mattered in divorce from the Pharisees' perspective was the giving of that bill of divorcement, the certificate. In other words, they were super diligent. You've got to have a bill of divorcement. And divorce was perfectly okay and acceptable in any and all circumstances as long as you gave the bill of divorce. But there was no consideration in any of their stuff to the heart condition that might be behind it. They were avoiding and getting around the whole issue of divorce. All the things that swirl around that. When, how, should it even be? They didn't even go there. They weren't practicing the protection of women and children at all, which was the real reason for Moses' teaching in the first place. You realize that? They were declaring what, what that law meant and giving an interpretation, but totally missed the heart behind what Moses was bringing, which was trying to protect women and children from being misused and abused. Now, let's jump ahead to Jesus' teaching on divorce, because now we're going to, this is men, it may seem kind of fuzzy and kind of unclear. That's exactly what they were feeling in the moment that Jesus was teaching. There are many people who are scratching and said, I don't get this. I know that that's what they say, but it doesn't feel right. Or maybe it does feel right because it makes me feel better about where I'm at. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you have heard it said, or you have been taught this, but let me tell you what this really means. He says this, it's been said, we'll read it again, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's a true statement. It's exactly what Moses said. But I tell you, in other words, let's talk about the heart of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus makes it very clear. You can't get any more clear than that. Anyone who divorces his wife except for adultery, sexual unfaithfulness. He, clear, he, he clears that, that doing so except for a divorce outside of adultery, causes the spouse that you divorce to commit adultery if they get remarried. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> you know why? Because you guys don't look at, we don't, I don't, you don't, look at it like God does. We look at it from a human perspective. We don't look at it, we don't understand the sanctity, the seriousness of marriage, what all goes into marriage. Because we lived in a culture that has devalued it, and, and even to begin with, marriage is a great mystery, Scripture says. All right, And then going on, this, he also clearly states here, the person who marries the divorced person, outside of, well, even if it is because of adultery, but anybody that marries a divorced person after a frivolous divorce also commits adultery. Um, I would say this, the, the big question, and I don't have time to develop it this morning, so what happens if you end up divorcing your spouse because they were unfaithful to you? Can you remarry? I can't answer that today. I'm not trying to avoid that. I just don't have time. I don't have time to develop it. But I'm going to give you, we're going to refer you to a whole slew of resources after the service, okay? What Jesus is showing here, again, is the seriousness of the covenant of marriage. It's not to be taken lightly. And he gives the only reason you truly can dissolve a marriage from his, from his and he was God, was because of adultery. 
We need to look at further at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 if we're going to get the fullness of this. So let's go back to Matthew 19 now and read what he says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Key question. Okay. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command? Moses didn't command. He did say if you divorce, you have to have that certificate of divorce, but he didn't tell them they had to divorce. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Very important statement there. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's literal. It's clear. I don't think there's a lot of interpretation. There may be some side issues that need interpretation, but what he said is very, very direct and clear. Jesus addresses in this question the sanctity of marriage. He goes beyond Moses' teaching. He said, it was not this way from the beginning. What did he mean by the beginning? All the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 2. This is what he's referring to. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Adam is in the garden. He's by himself. The animals are all there. God's brought them in front of him. He's named them all. And at the very end, it says, no suitable helper was found for Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, ready? From the beginning, marriage was meant to be between one man and one woman for life. End of discussion. One man, one woman for life. If you want to know what God's original plan was, that's it. Well, how do you know that? Because that's what he instituted at the beginning. And when he says the two were united and became one flesh... It's as if God sees them as one unit. There isn't a separation. They are joined together in his eyes. God is the one who brings them together. Whom God has brought together, let no man separate. Right? When God brings them together, no, right here. God is the one who brings a husband and wife together, and it says that we should not separate that. Who are we? as human beings, to think that by our laws and by our legislations and by our reasons, we can overrule God's law and what he originally brought about. It's pretty haughty. And I'm telling you, all I'm asking you, you test the fruit in what we've done. You test the fruit in what we've done. We've changed God's law it made it perfectly okay across the board to be divorced for any and all reasons. Is our culture better because of it? Is the world a better place because of it? Is your life better because of it? 
All of us, whether we're divorced or not, have been touched by divorce because it's so rampant. I'm telling you, I've not seen a situation yet where it's better. It may eliminate one problem, but it creates numerous other ones as well. Marriage is not a civil contract. Even though I'm required by the state of New York when I perform a marriage to sign the marriage license to solemnize that in that ceremony and get two witnesses to sign that, marriage is not solemnized by the state of New York or the federal government. It is not a civil contract. It is a God covenant. It's something that God instituted. It's not a sacrament, as some churches would say. That it's something as a church that's a super It is super important, but the church doesn't have final say on that. God does. Marriage is something in which two people become one flesh, and that's a mystery. But I'm telling you, the one flesh, physically, sexually, emotionally, and spiritually. Whether people are admitting any spiritual thing together, when they're married, the whole act coming together physically all unites all that stuff together. <laughs> and anybody that has been through divorce or has walked with people who have gone through divorce, you know when that's torn apart, it destroys people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And some people carry scars for the rest of their life, even though God can bring healing to that. That's the balancing point. He can bring healing, which we'll talk about later on. There is a permanence to marriage. It was meant to be permanent. And when we choose as a culture, or as a world, or as a person to go against God's eternal plan of the permanence of marriage, we will pay a price for it. Not necessarily forever, but we will pay a price, especially in the short term, and even in the long term. God's plan, one woman, one man, for life, and that's still his plan today. Regardless what our world says, regardless what our culture says, regardless what the psychologists say, regardless what the legislation says, no. One man, one woman for life, and that has never changed. It was from the, Jesus said, that's not the way it was from the beginning. So don't talk to me about what Moses said. He said, I'm taking you all the way back to what God instituted at the beginning. And he never retracted that. Okay? Jesus states again, so why did Moses do that? Why did Moses give the, the idea of the certificate of divorce? Why did he allow it? And Jesus said, it was because of the hardness of your heart. God wasn't advocating divorce. He wasn't commanding divorce. God was trying to, to, to bring concessions, to bring people out of their messed up heart state that would cause them to do such terrible things to people around them that they claimed to have loved at one point and now are going to damage their lives forever. He was trying to bring order to marital chaos in their culture and bring the hearts back to his original plan and intent for marriage. But people, as always do, miss the point. God, ready? God never, anywhere, in all of his word, in all the truth that's spoken, in all the teachings of Jesus, never commands or requires divorce. Never. You say, wait a minute, Jesus said, except for divorce. He didn't say you had to. 
He said, that's the only reason that you can. The Pharisees, in their teaching, had gotten to the spot where they taught and suggested that God commanded divorce. And people have run after, and I have walked with people like this, that have run after what they perceive to be the teaching of God in this area because of unfaithfulness, that I have to. Jesus never said you had to. God did command for a bill of divorce, but the only reason that was, was to protect the wrong treatment of the spouse who, was divor- who had been divorced. That was the thing. It was with the intent and the hope and the plan that it would protect that person because people weren't being obedient. God's teaching on marriage throughout the Word. Marriage is insoluble. Insoluble. You can say we can get rid of it. We can undo it. We can change it. But from God's perspective, marriage is insoluble. How about this one? Listen very carefully to what I say next. Love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness reign supreme in this whole thing. Let's not get hung up, like I said, on what appears to be a very harsh statement. Or even maybe, maybe I'm sounding harsh. I'm just trying to tell you the truth because we need to hear the truth because you're not going to hear it anywhere but from God's Word. Love and forgiveness must reign supreme above and beyond all of these things. God is trying to get us to move away from humanistic thinking. And what's the humanistic thinking look like in a marriage relationship? That person spoiled my life. They were mean, they were nasty, they were awful, they did all this stuff, they have absolutely ruined and spoiled my life. Therefore, I must divorce them so I can be happy, so I can be fulfilled. How about this? Listen to this quote that I came across this week on this topic. As, now, this is for every one of us as an individual. Divorced, undivorced, whatever, wherever your marital status doesn't matter. As unworthy and undeserving sinners, if you don't think that's you, then you really need to go back to the Gospel 101, We're all unworthy, undeserving sinners, but we have been forgiven by the grace of God. And that must enter into and control our view of everything that happens to us in all of our life with respect to all other people and especially in the relationship of marriage. Love and forgiveness trump adultery. And you say, now you're on dangerous ground. No, I'm not. Because I'll tell you, if you don't buy into that, that love and forgiveness trump all, what really is the grace of God? Because I'll tell you one thing, I don't deserve it. I have been unfaithful. The Bible is scattered all the way through. Some of these things are so serious because God's trying not to, he's trying to help us have healthy families and, and have peace and have all the things that the fruit that can come out of a healthy marriage. But you know what it really is all about? He's trying to get our attention about our own spiritual state. And if you'll admit to yourself, you come to Christ, you ask for forgiveness, but do you ever sin again? How about this? You stumble into sin, yeah. But have you ever, since you've been saved, have you ever known the right thing to do and then chose not to do it? That's deliberate. And you know what that is? The Bible actually equates that to spiritual 
adultery, spiritual idolatry. And if you know your Bible, those are serious matters. But you know what? Jesus' death on the cross provides love and forgiveness and grace even to the worst of us as sinners when we screw up. And God is begging us, with Jesus living in you and the Holy Spirit living in you, you can give love and forgiveness even in the most atrocious act of the break of trust in your life. Okay, now it gets even worse. <laughs> you say, worse, worse, harder. You want to know what God says about divorce? We said we already have. How about this one? Let's read. This is in Malachi. Okay, God, the, the prophet Malachi is addressing, again, the children of God, the Israelites, God's people, who were going to temple and offering sacrifices, if you will, going to church and doing their thing and giving their money, doing all those things that a good Christian should do. And then Malachi, God tells Malachi, I need you to go and tell them this. And this is what he said. Another thing that you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You know what we need to do? I only give you the, the other part. <laughs> that was a major blunder. Okay. I stopped in that quote. I'm going to read to you what comes next. Right? Break, uh, so be on your guard. Let me read to you. Has not the Lord made them one flesh? And flesh and spirit they're his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. i tell you the truth. What does God think about divorce? He says, I hate divorce. God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorcees. Hear that? God hates divorce because it's against his plan. That was at the beginning of time. God hates divorce because of what it does to the couple involved. They think it's going to fix everything. It doesn't. God hates divorce because of what it does to the other people around him. Children, family members, friends, Co-workers, you know, we always like to talk about our sphere of influence. Divorce wreaks havoc in your sphere of influence, directly and indirectly. Please hear this, what's written on the wall. Please hear that. 
God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorcees. Did you hear that? He doesn't hate divorcees. If you've been divorced, God doesn't hate you. Do you hear that? He doesn't hate you. The song we sang this morning, he loves you. Do you realize how much he loves you? God also hates drunkenness. He hates pornography. He hates adultery. He hates lying. He hates cheating. He hates stealing. He hates, hates bearing false witness. He hates factions. He hates gossip. But he doesn't hate the people that do those things. He hates what they do. Because they do damage. And they make messes. God doesn't hate divorcees. He loves them. More than any of us would ever know. He loves them in their brokenness. And in the mess. And in failures. And in weaknesses. His grace. His forgiveness. His love. Is unlimited to people that are in the midst of those things. He wants to walk with them through it, through those difficulties. He wants to put the pieces back together again. There was a time when divorce was growing in our culture, and I remember it because it's happened in my lifetime. And so as it was growing and becoming more popular, it really stressed the churches. And I'll tell you, there was awful stuff that happened in the name of Christ because we would stand up and say, God hates divorce, but they wouldn't bring the balance that he doesn't hate the divorcee. There were people that were kicked out of churches because they had been divorced 30 years before and somebody found out about it. And so to maintain purity, we have to kick them out. That's not what the church is. It is true that God hates divorce. It's not what he wants. He wants reconciliation. He wants restoration. He wants to repair relationships. But when things happen, there's grace, there's forgiveness. That's one extreme when the church, God's people, didn't represent God accurately in those situations. But then on the other hand, I actually have sat with people before, at least one individual, that marriage was breaking up, and they stood before me, I'm going to divorce, and then I'm going to remarry, and I'll ask for God for forgiveness after the fact. What does that do to what Jesus did on the cross? I know he doesn't want me to do it. I know I'm disobedient. But you know what? That person loves Jesus today and probably has repented and done all those things. But in that moment, what am I going to do to try to help that situation? If you're not going to be obedient to what you know God said, Jesus said very clearly, and God states that, the only cause for divorce is adultery. You know what everybody's thinking right now? I know, because I think the same thing. But what about? What about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about... All of that is real. But I warn you, the moment we move away from this, the, 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 the declaration that Jesus made, we open the door for loopholes that are not really there. 
we actually can start very rapidly to go in the same direction that the Pharisees and God's people have in the past, which is our hard-heartedness and looking for an excuse. It may be in our own life, but we're trying to make our friend feel better. You know what your friend really needs? You know what you really need? Is you need Jesus to show up in power and might in your life and to bring forgiveness, to bring hope, to bring things, and to show the power of God to bring restoration in your relationship. That's what needs to happen. And the world would take note of such things. When we follow along and do what the world has, we're no different than anybody else. I have worked with people on both ends of this. I'm telling you, say, you could never have a good relationship after a breakdown of faithfulness. I disagree. I know people who had been in the study down at the old Woodville Church who had gone through unfaithfulness in their marriage, and it was ugly, and it was awful, and it was a mess, and there was sparks flying, and it was bad. And I remember they walked out, one of them walked out of her office and wouldn't come back. I thought, well, that's over. But they, there was faith involved, even though it might have been very minuscule at the time. They never divorced. They stuck it out. And they ended up having a good marriage and were used of God in the kingdom because in the end, they backed away from me and mine and chose to walk in love and forgiveness. And God met there and restored. I have another friend, similar thing. I didn't work in their life, but they weathered that storm. And he told me when he found out, and for a long time afterwards, it literally almost made him throw up the unfaithfulness. But you know what? They stuck it out. And he told me it was a while till the feelings followed. But they have a good marriage today. They have grandchildren today. They are used mightily in God's kingdom today. They stuck it out. It can happen. God, in his declaration, is trying to get our attention to the permanence and the seriousness of marriage from his perspective. Recognize his grace and forgiveness that he can enable us to walk in grace and forgiveness towards even our spouse in the most horrendous things they do. We love because he first loved us. And when did he love us? When we were still sinners and deliberately walking away from him. And because the spirit of the living God lives in me and lives in you, we can tap into that strength and that power to love the same way that God does when we don't deserve it. When we start questioning, but what about this and what about that, we're in the danger of not truly seeking reconciliation and restoration in a broken relationship. We're also in danger of not coaching our friends or our family members to have reconciliation and restoration. But I'm going to tell you right now, outside of Jesus Christ, I don't know. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think it even happens in the world sometimes. When people follow godly principles without knowing their godly principles, it still works. But I'm telling you what your friends and family members and other people need is to be coached that there's a strength outside of them that can help them do that. And need somebody to tell them that this situation you're facing, what you think is going to solve your problems, is not going to fix them. This may sound, this message may sound harsh. It may sound impractical and out of touch with reality. <laughs> you want to see what the disciples said after what he told them in Matthew 19? After 19, you know, the whole idea, your hardness of heart and all those things there. He said, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, 
Not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, you know you're right, guys, that it may be better for you not to marry because of the permanence and what it's going to do to you. But he says not everybody can handle that. Not everybody is built that way to walk without being married. But only to those that it's been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus was simply saying, yes, this is a hard truth. But basically saying that, and the disciples picked up on it. It's like, wow, if that's how permanent marriage is, and there's only one way out from what I see over there, maybe people shouldn't get married anymore. And Jesus saying, well, you can't go all that way because that's not what he was saying. It's not what he was saying. So what do we do? What do you and I do? What should we do in a culture that's awash with divorce? What do we do when, they, when unfortunately, even the, uh, any, the researchers say the status of marriage in the church is not a whole lot better than it is outside the church, although I think those are skewed a little bit, okay? Because when you look at rate of divorce, the one thing that's not being taken into account, because you can't take it into account very easily, is the fact that people don't get married anymore. They just live together. They bounce from partner to partner to partner to partner to partner, and that never hits the... So realistically, if you want to know, living with somebody and having sex with somebody and all those kinds of things is, is like being married from God's perspective. So there's a lot of divorces going on. They're just not official, just like there's a lot of marriages going on that aren't official. I remember as a young man, really struggling with a lot of stuff when we're getting married. Physical temptation as we're dating and all this stuff there and going, holy cow, God, I can't believe that you make it this hard to walk in your plan. And they'll say, what, are you, and what does it mean to be married? And when does it actually occur? And got no great answers because it's a great mystery. The only thing I got in the end, I said, Kyle, you need to obey me because as a man, as hard as it is for you to stay clean right now and stay pure right now, not that I was perfect, but I really felt him saying, the only thing I can say is you're going to have to live a self-sacrificing life if you're going to be a good husband and you're going to be a good father, so you may as well learn it now to say no to your impulses. No to your drives and let them wait until the appropriate time. All of the things that our culture does in substitution of marriage, people say, well, we're going to live together to see if it really works first. Do you realize the statistics? People that live together before they're married have a much higher divorce rate than those that don't. So what do you do? What do you do? Do I have the first one written here? Click it for me. It won't go forward. It is? Okay. Yep. Must be I didn't write notes for the rest of it. First thing. What do you do? Love people. Forgive people. Tell them the truth. Love people. Forgive people. Tell them the truth in a culture that's awash with divorce. Love them, forgive where you need to forgive, and then tell them the truth. Don't be afraid to tell them what Jesus said and why he said it. If you've been divorced, tell your story. Tell your story before it's too late for them, that you wish maybe you had done it differently, that it didn't solve everything. How about if you're married? What do you do then? I've had a note sitting on my desk, in my study, 
for weeks now as we've been going through this latest thing, the teachings of Jesus. And it sits right there and it says, if we really love Jesus, really love him, we'll obey his commands. And we'll find that his teachings and his commands are not irksome, are not troublesome, are not difficult. If we really love Jesus, we will obey his teaching, including this one right here. We will do everything, married people, we will do everything in our power. And I'm asking you and challenging you and screaming at you without raising my voice to raise the bar, to increase the work, to lift the weights, to run the mile, to do the training, to do all the work. If, if we really love Jesus, we will do everything in our power to affair-proof our marriages and to divorce-proof our marriages. I'm using that as the beginning point because that's the minimal. God wants more for you than just an affair-proof or divorce-proof marriage. He wants you to experience the fullness of what he intended for marriage to be. And he wants you to do everything in your power to experience that. What else do you do as a married person? Learn to deal with your stuff and your issues before they become so big that you can't fix them. Peter, do you remember? Is Peter here? Peter, do you remember? As a young man, I think I was new in the pastorate. You were the administrator. I walked down in your room at about 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning because I was working with a couple who was going through terrible issues in their marriage. And I was beside myself. And I walked into Peter's office and I said, Peter, you've had experience. Have you ever counseled people in marriage? Yes, I have. What's your been experience when it's bad? He hung his head. He goes, once it gets really bad to the point what you're explaining, I haven't had a very good track record of seeing it turn around. So I'm telling you, you as a married person, you work on that relationship. You do the work. You do the homework before the problems get so big you can't fix them. You're saying, well, can they get big enough where you can't fix them? The bigger they get, the longer you entertain them, the longer you ignore them, the harder it's going to be to put it back together again. My son Jordan works construction. He's talking about this place they've been working up on Tug Hill that is crooked and everything else, but it has nostalgic value to the family. So they've been basically rebuilding buildings all around it and redoing the whole thing. And he just scratched it the whole time. It would have been better off to wipe the whole thing out and start over because how do you fix things that are crumbling and that are totally unlevel? Do you build it unlevel with it? Do you try to fix? What does that mean? We need to work on our problems when they're small. Actually, we need to work on our marriages before there's a problem. Be proactive. We're already fighting from behind the game when we ignore or don't realize that there are going to be problems if we don't take care of things. So the wise person takes care of things early on and catches all those issues when they're very small and can be dealt with. Don't be lazy and complacent in your marriage. You say, it's easy for you to say, Pastor. <laughs> I'm 55, got married when I was 26, I got five kids, I got five grandchildren, I'm a full-time pastor, I work two to three days a week in a, in a, in a shop, I'm helping my son build a, a house, I've got my own projects, relying on all kinds of things. Don't tell me, don't tell me that it can't be done. It requires us to have discipline in our life, to sit down and have hard conversations, to actually make plans to do things that fill us, to be willing to be admitting to each other that there's, there's potential, not potential difficulty, but 
but seeing the things that could cause problems. Don't be lazy. Don't be complacent. Don't be reactive. Be proactive. And I want you to strive to have the strongest, most vibrant, most fulfilling marriage that's possible. How are you going to do that? Read, study, practice, sacrifice, go the extra mile. It's not going to just happen by you getting up in the morning, having coffee, going to work, coming home, watching TV, and going to bed at night. It ain't going to happen that way. You do that, problems are going to arise, and if you don't wake up soon, you're going to end up in trouble. It takes work. But it's work that's fulfilling. And I want to encourage you, you do that work, you do that studying, you do that reading, you study that. And listen, I don't like to read books. How often are you on your phone reading articles that you're interested in or posts that you're interested in? It's not that you don't like to read books. The enemy puts things in front of you to keep you from getting the information that you need. Don't like to read books? Then listen to them. Do something to strengthen that marriage. And it's not just so that you'll be peaceful, that you'll have good things happen in your life, and that bad things won't happen to you and your kids. In the end, you know why we do it? For the glory of God himself. Because God is magnified in a marriage that's strong. And God gets a black eye when you and I as Christians don't have good marriages. We're supposed to be what? Salt. Different. People should look at our marriages and not understand, why are you willing to sacrifice like that? Why do you say no to that? Why aren't you willing to do this anymore? Because I march to a higher call. Unmarried people, what do you do? Prep for marriage before you're there? No, nobody does that. I did. I had parents that recommended me to read. I didn't read a lot, but I did read a couple books. And I would listen. They were good enough. They, 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 they didn't share all their dirt or other people's dirt, but they did share truthful principles about marriage and avoiding things that could damage marriage when we were young. And I listened to those things, and they were firmly ingrained. And I read books, and I prayed about it. Study what it takes to be, have a strong marriage as an unmarried person. And then listen. Listen very carefully to what I say next. If you are a follower of Christ, you take it really seriously of who you marry. You find somebody who loves Jesus, who's serious about their faith, and you hold it until God brings that person along. Somebody that shares those values, that wants to build their life on God's truth. And if you're not there yet, that's where it starts. You have got to build your life on God's truth as non-negotiables, and then toe the line and wait, and God will bring. I was 26 before I met my wife. I begin to wonder if it would ever happen. But God was faithful. And I found a woman whose faith is stronger than mine. God was good. He rewards those who are diligent and who seek after him. Take seriously who you commit your life to. My wife and I both had the same feeling after we got married. All the nervousness of the day, you go through the ceremony, you go through the reception, and then we're alone, getting ready to go on our honeymoon. And as we're driving to Maine, both of us simultaneously are saying the same thing. What did I just do?
Mm. We were convinced that we were supposed to get married. I'm convinced this day, but boy, I'll tell you one thing. You know why we were, what did I do just do? Because both of us believed that what we had just done was permanent and was not going to be undone. And you second-guessed your thing. Now, fortunately, it didn't take long after that to begin to realize that we made the right choice. But that's because we took it really seriously. Out in the foyer today, there's a whole bunch of books. A whole bunch of books. I don't know, I think it's Teresa going to be out there because some of them are library books, unfortunately. Some are books that we just found. Some are library books. But they're there for you, married or unmarried, to take home and read and to start applying those principles. All right? And there's a lot more in the library, too. The library is full of them. We just pulled some off that caught our attention, stuff that we've read, some that we've heard about, and that kind of thing. There's resources on the eye. And the other thing, the other thing that's out there in the foyer at the information booth, there's a devotional I wrote this week called Marriage and Divorce. And in that one is 15 to 20 scriptures about what God says about marriage and divorce. Some of the same ones we looked at, but then a whole bunch of things he talks about marriage. And in that, you'll find his plan, his purposes. You'll give tips and suggestions if you'll meditate on it. I close this morning. But what about abuse in a marriage? What about real danger? Not perceived danger, but real danger. The reason I say perceived versus real, the Bible tells us our hearts are not always trustworthy. But I'm talking, there, there are lots of situations in our world today that there's real abuse and real bad things and there's real danger. I would say this as a precursor. I'm reminded of why Paul probably prefaced some of his statements. I say this, not necessarily God saying this. Because God is kind of silent. There's nothing written about that kind of thing. You might be able to find some indirect, not dealing with marriage, about abuse and dangerous situations. They're probably there. But I'm just telling you, if you're in an abuse or dangerous situation, there may be a need to separate for your well-being. There may be a need, when I, say, I also use the word separate, there may be a niche situation where you need to get away from that situation for your own well-being, but I, I, I caution you when I'm talking now because physically you're in danger. What about emotionally? That's a little bit more tricky because right now, you, now we'd ask the next question. So it's pretty easy we say physical danger because we could all kind of say that's really physical danger and look at somebody and say, well, you're really not in physical danger. But what about emotional danger? How do you declare that in our world today? I don't know. But there may be situations where you need space. And I'm saying space for one thing, for your own safety. Your own safety. But notice what I didn't say. You don't need to immediately rush to divorce. In fact, I would strongly caution it. In fact, I would counsel you not to do it. I would encourage you to go and dig deep in and say, God, I know how you think about marriage. I know, and there is hope that things could change. You say, you don't know my spouse and what they do. What did Jesus say to the people that were beating the crap out of him and, and when he was on the, on the cross? What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the same spirit that was with Jesus that day lives in my heart and your heart if you're a Christian. And so it is possible to pray the same prayer 
and mean it and to walk in forgiveness and to walk in love? Am I guaranteeing that there's going to be reconciliation? I can't guarantee that because, remember the Bible also says, as much as lies within you, try to live at peace with all people, including your nasty, awful spouse, <laughs> if that's what you want to say about him. You see what I'm saying? It's not, it's, not, it's not as cut and dried as the world makes it to be or as the last person you talked to or, or the person that said this. There's a lot more to it. And I really believe with something as seriousness as our marriages and what it, the ripple effects that divorce has, it's important that we're on our knees before Jesus, not for five minutes, not for ten minutes, but for a long time to give him time to work and to move, but being safe in the middle of it. Take seriously God's instructions and not man's, especially what the culture says. Whenever the culture, <laughs> I think I told you to tell you this last week, Guy at Kingdom Bond said this, when you read the Bible and it says something and you're not so sure you believe it, you're wrong. So that's, that's nasty, that's me. But it was, you've you got to get the moment. He kind of paused between he said, you're wrong. We were all waiting for this great explanation of like, to rap. he just said, you're wrong. And this is a man who's applied that in his own life and has come to terms with that. It doesn't require faith to follow God's teachings when it feels good, when it makes logical sense. But when you follow God's teachings because everything inside you is screaming, I want to do it a different way, or everybody around you is saying do it a different way, but it really is what God's truth is, then it takes faith and it takes trust. And it really puts yourself out there that he loves you enough to tell you the truth and that there'll be good fruit in being obedient. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the midst of a... a, a, a they're all truths, Lord. Sometimes they're harder to hear than others. I pray right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that what would permeate each and every one of us right now is your love, your forgiveness. Lord, for those that have gone through the horrors and the difficulties of divorce, I pray for healing. I pray for healing of the soul, healing of the heart, healing of the emotions, healing physically, healing spiritually. Lord, for those that are in the midst of marriages right now that aren't what they should be, I pray for hope, I pray for peace, I pray for comfort, I pray for strength. I pray for the ability and the endurance to know your truth, to seek it out, and to, and to, and to follow that. And also, Lord, I pray that you would help with the emotional pain and suffering, Lord. I pray for your love to permeate all of this, your forgiveness to permeate all of it, Lord. I pray also, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that we would accept your speaking truth into our hearts. And recognize you do that for one reason and one reason only, because you love us enough to tell us the truth. And to recognize, Lord, that you're trying to spare us from things that are worse than maybe what we're experiencing right now. I pray that we would trust you enough and believe in you enough to know that you have our best in mind. And Lord, I pray for strength, not just for tomorrow, but strength, strength in, the, in the people with relational difficulties, strength for the next minute, the next second. And a reliance upon you through that. Help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that, that we would experience your love, your strength, your empowerment. And Lord, as you work in our lives, that we also could be beacons of hope and light and salt to help other people and to be willing to tell them the truth as well and to share our own stories and to share the hope that Jesus brings and the victory that Jesus brings. 
I just thank you, Lord, that you're not shy on grace, and you're not short on mercy, and you're not short on forgiveness, and you're not short on answers, and you're not short on power and the ability to restore and reconcile and do all these things. But I pray that in the midst of all this, that we would not get so caught up in earthly relationship that we would forget the eternal significance of what's going on in our souls. I just thank you, Lord, that you're a good God, that you've always been good, and you always will be good, and you do what's best for us. And you instruct us because you love us and you care about us and want us to experience your love in a powerful way. We just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.